Section three of the Short Life by Francis Donovan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Six. Indian summer now lay softly upon the land. On a wooded rise ten miles from the outskirts of the town, close by a bluff overlooking the bushland, the tan walls of a small tent warmed to the late afternoon sun. Here and there beyond the bushland the supper smoke of scattered farms stood columned and motionless. The only sound on the still air was the harsh, labored breathing of the dying Homer. The dog lay in the open near the edge of the bluff, his eyes closed, his companions seated nearby. Phil had brought Timmy on a weekend camping trip that now appeared spoiled at the outset, for the short, steep climb up the bluff had unexpectedly proven too much for old Grey Muzzle. His trembling legs had barely carried him to the top before he collapsed, and now it was only a question of how long he must suffer before release. Phil glanced toward a twenty-two rifle lying with her gear. It would be more merciful. No, Uncle Phil. He'll live until sundown at least. Let him have that much. I'm sorry this happened, Timmy, but now that it has, I think we should make it easier for him. You liked him, didn't you, Uncle Phil? Yes, Tim. I'm a bit surprised to find that I really did. I can't say that I'm much of an animal lover, but in his way, Homer was the perfect old faithful. No beauty and not very bright, you must admit, but he never left your side. It won't seem the same. It won't be the same, Uncle Phil. The boy raised his head to look over the distant bushland. His face was composed. Timmy, I hesitate to say this, but I don't seem very upset about it. Well, yes. Did you really care much for Homer? You never paid any attention to him, never petted or played with him, just let him tag along. I had no need to pet or play with him, and it was enough that he give me all of his attention. I should have spared a thought for him, his needs and limitations, but it's too late now. The answering voice was subtly changed from that of a boy, and strangely gentle. A dog's life is so short, hardly more than to-day and to-morrow. A breath or two, and it has begun and ended. When Homer dies, he will be free, and I will no longer exist. A chill slid over the man. What makes a voice? Air and musculature and tissue, but what more? A brain, a mind, a life. An accumulative series of reactive patterns called life grows like a fragile crystal around a seeding impulse that lacks a name acceptable to all, and the resulting structure is called personality or character, and it influences what it touches in a manner peculiar to itself alone. Given the crude tools of a sound-producing mechanism, it will, if it chooses and has the skill, 
disclosed some trifle of its own true nature. Phil heard words that should have sounded idiotic coming from a boy, but they carried complete and instant conviction. Without elocutionary tricks, without fire and oratory, the boy voice had changed in timbre, acquired a quality that could sway multitudes. The wild thought crossed Phil's mind that what it had acquired was the quality of complete sanity. A suspicion, planted deliberately and nurtured through the years, matured on the triggered instant. Phil twisted around, alert, wary, almost hostile, his eyes searching the somewhat bony young face. His gaze was returned steadily, with assured composure. "'Who are you?' he demanded bluntly. "'What are you?' Timmy laughed lightly, patently at ease. "'I am nothing, Phil, nothing at all.' "'Rot! You are flesh and blood, human, and were born to Helen and Jerry. What else?' "'Is there more?' "'Stop playing!' Phil jumped up angrily, standing tall over the seated figure. "'I've watched you for years. You've given yourself away repeatedly.' "'Ah, that advanced scientific knowledge worried you badly, didn't it?' "'I see. You revealed it deliberately. There are other things. Your aversion to crowds. Their thinking confused me. They were dangerous.' "'Were?' After tonight, crowds will not matter. Because Homer will be dead. Because Homer will be dead, poor beast. My conscience will be dead. What on earth does that mean? I find it impossible either to doubt you or to think of you as a boy any longer. That is because your mind is filled with uncertainties, mine with certainties. You have never before met anyone in whom certainty was a clear truth unquestioned on any level of any remote corner of the mind. I am such a one. Phil sat down helplessly. There was no point in standing. Whatever Tim was, he was not going to be dominated by tricks. What are you? What can I say? I am a book that is being read, yet I am neither the pages nor the printing on the pages, but only the meaning inherent in the shapes and sequences of the letters that comprise the printing. Can't you give me a straight answer? It is difficult. You must think about what I say. But the ideas recorded in a book are merely thoughts. They have no tangible existence. Nor have I. You're not a product of my imagination. Hardly. Are you giving me that line about all is illusion? No. The boy laughed spontaneously. Are you a mutant, a new evolutionary development? No. Nor am I a machine or a monster. At least you're alive. That, I think, is a matter of definition. Then for the third time, what are you? Stop baiting me! Timmy's hand closed on Phil's, a firm, warm, dirty, and somewhat calloused boy's hand that was unquestionably flesh, blood, and bone. 
Take it easy, Uncle Phil. Perhaps he had pushed too hard. The dancing eyes veiled themselves a little, and the intangible, indescribable magnetism somehow faded. Phil looked at him, was suddenly able to see him and to think of him once more as Timmy, a boy with unusual qualities, but the same boy he had watched for years. He shook his head and felt somewhat bemused, as he had done once before. Look, let's get a fresh start, Tim, and stop going in circles. Okay, Uncle Phil. He was an eleven-year-old again, responding obediently. I've suspected for years that we didn't know the truth about you, that you were something special, something new. Well, Tim appeared to consider it gravely. Yeah, I guess that's fair enough. I'm something new, all right. For years, then, you've been concealing something, something that showed through whenever you made a slip. Want to bet on how many of those slips were deliberate? Tim challenged, then joined Phil's rueful laugh. Not all of them were, I got to admit, but most of them. But today, apparently because Homer is dying, you've abandoned pretense, come out in the open. Not all the way out, not yet. You've still got some shocks coming, Uncle Phil. I don't doubt it, you young hoodlum. You were pretty overwhelming there for a few minutes. But why all the mystery? Why not just tell me? You explained why. Overwhelming? Are you that terrific? I'm a humdinger, bub. Think you can stand it now? I think the full blast would be better than any more of your gentle hints. That's what you think. Come now, the first shock had been fairly neatly delivered, and fielded after all. The concept of difference proposed, established, and accepted. Well, here goes. You remember that spray of flowers I handed you in the car that night? I've had my suspicions about them ever since. Okay, now smell this pine cone. Phil looked at it with distrust. The thing that beats me is how I can be morally certain that pine cone is loaded, cocked, and ready to fire, and yet I take it. He let Tim put it in his hand, and smell it. He raised it to his nostrils, held his breath for a moment, then gingerly sniffed. Time stopped. All sense of duration was gone. Awareness drifted in formless inattention, until a focal point, a mere nucleus of intellect, captured and held it. The nucleus strengthened, became an impression of identity. Not his own identity, nor any that he knew, but that of some other. From this other presence came insistently the warmth and gentleness of goodwill, an unreserved outpouring that sought to evoke an unreserved response. Isolation, the sanctum of the mind, took the assault, melting like an ice castle in the sun. But before the tempting surrender could become irrevocable, alarms rang through his being, and his mind gathered in on itself in confusion, holding its isolation intact and inviolate through the opposing desires to yield and to withdraw, 
to break barriers down and to raise them up, he detected from the other a reaction, both of pity and of revulsion. The pressure decreased. He knew then that what he yielded willingly would be accepted as sufficient, and no more be asked of him than he was capable of giving. Somehow it was not a victory, but a defeat. He became aware that the private domain he had claimed for his own was truly his own, a corridored, compartmented, dungeoned storehouse of filed fancies and forgotten files, a tunneled, reveted, embrasured, and battlemented citadel, filled with rusty armor and broken lances, a hawk-shop, a junkyard, a hall of distorting mirrors, a cemetery by the sea, a peak of glory, a slow of despond, a radiant light, an encroaching dark, the sweetest of melody, the sourest of discord, a library of trivia, museum of curiosa, sideshow of freaks, and shrine of greatness. It was the lowering pendulum, the waiting pit, the closing walls. It was the vaulting spirit, the gallant heart, the just and the kind and the merciful. Withal, it was a haunted castle, perpetually besieged, the towers soaring, but the structure toppling. It was himself. His memories, his experiences, his actions and reactions, his life. And it was appalling. A gentle prompting from the other roused him from his self-immersion, and for a moment he was all panic, lest his secret had been observed. Mechanisms he had not known he possessed slammed doors and banged shutters over windows in a fine frenzy, so that the other winced and fell back, pleadingly, then softly and insistently drew near once more. He realized that there was a purpose that must be served. Something was desired from him. A voice. He tried, and the croak of a clogged throat would have held as much meaning as the disharmonious thrust of thought that began in chaos and ended in futility. Abashed, he would not try again. Silence crept around him, the silence of isolation. The most disarmingly hesitant, the most reassuringly inoffensive of thoughts, touched as lightly as a breath, and was accepted as his own. He saw no cause to take alarm. Such an insignificant invasion was of no more moment than the blowing of a grain of dust beneath a locked door. The thought lay among his own, and moved like a thread through his own, and the elements that it drew together became the acceptance of an idea. Secure in his ill-kept citadel, he permitted a rapport so tenuous he could break it at will, yet so strong that... 7. Memory tinged with homesickness tricked him into a sad reverie. That they were only memories, these thoughts that rose up to slyly capture his attention, was clear. He was under no illusion that he was experiencing for the first time 
events that had long melted into the past, for they had a commonplace familiarity that stamped them as scenes revisited, events relived, dear friends recalled to mind. He stood alone at the edge of a meadow, with the afternoon sun hot on his back, and debated with Andra the advisability of transplanting a certain shrub from its chance-chosen place in the meadow to a position in their own gardens. Throughout their discussion he was conscious of little drops of perspiration threading their way down his naked spine, and he longingly savoured the coolness of the stream-bank on which Andra reclined a mile or two to the south. In good-humoured exasperation he commented enviously on woman's lot, and drew a dry rejoinder from a chance traveller on the highway to the north. He joined in the general laugh at his own expense, hearing the sally repeated and elaborated until it drifted out of conversational range. He was tempted to follow it farther out of curiosity, but it was not good form to blanket local conversation for a mere whim. While his attention was distracted, however, Andra became involved in an exchange of local recipes with a newcomer to the district, a farm-wife whose husband had had a fancy to try the westward farmlands. He joined the husband in a wry grimace at the loquacity of women, and simultaneously caught sight of a distant figure crossing a ridge somewhat north of him. The figure paused at the same instant, looked searchingly in his direction, then waved on sighting him, and strolled on. It was the traveller, whose quip was now being repeated miles away, far in advance of him. Andra showed no sign of running out of recipes and returning to shrubs. He sighed, and stood alone in the meadow. The casual facility of memory bridged time and space without disorientation. He was strolling in the evening with his bride, Andra's arm linked with his for the added pleasure of physical contact. In the manner of lovers they supplemented their thoughts with murmured words and sounds, thus sharing still another physical intimacy. For they were still in that newly mated condition, where every manifestation of the one was a source of delight and wonder to the other. They paused momentarily by a vine-covered wall, and he felt a cool frond reach out to caress his shoulder, while a long tendril curled gracefully about his forearm between the upper and the lower wrists. A few hundred thousand years ago his remote ancestor would have recoiled violently from the touch of what was then a strangler-vine, but now he casually disengaged the half-sentient tendril and with his mind caught the faint, faint flicker of rudimentary awareness. Thus far had nature progressed with the vine, apparently reluctant to abandon a false start toward mobility and intelligence for an unsuitable species. Or perhaps, Andra added, in nature's long-term view, the experiment might still be considered promising. He shook his head. The vine had learned peaceful ways that saved it from extinction, drawing its food quietly from the earth while further developing a mobility of sorts, but eventually an impasse would be reached when greater mobility would endanger nutrition. If the roots withdrew from the soil, the vine would die. Unless, he agreed slowly, echoing her shudder, 
the vine solved the dilemma by becoming again a carnivorous strangler. Nature made unaccountable blunders, and sometimes found strange remedies, turning a blessing for one species into a curse for others. On the same impulse they gazed at the night sky, blazing with the heart of the galaxy spread around them, a galaxy as yet less than half-mapped, only a small fraction of its secrets known. Like many new mates, they planned a leisurely, lengthy quest among the stars, a trip for which their mutual absorption peculiarly fitted them. After all, the advancement of knowledge still required physical and intellectual research, and the joy of living still demanded physical and emotional release, but there was one great barrier to space travel. Leaving the great community of Chalon ordinarily meant leaving an intensely experienced fellowship, to endure a shattering isolation no less intensely felt, unless one were fortunate enough to be chosen for an exploration team. There was both comfort and common sense in the use of teams of the greatest numerical strength consistent with efficiency, but the resources demanded by such teams limited the number that could be fielded at one time. Consequently, private voyages in small craft were not entirely uncommon among the hardy, or the temporarily self-sufficient, such as he and Andra. In a few days they would leave Chalon behind, break for the first time the half-spiritual link with all their world, and voyage forth in the belief that their love for each other was alone enough to sustain them. At the same instant, the same doubt of self-worthiness crept into each mind, and was read and stoutly answered by the other, while a dozen neighbors near and distant interrupted their own concerns to murmur encouragement and recall the doubts they, too, had felt and learned to dismiss. Reassured, he led Andra back to the house, scarcely aware of the background bustle of other minds, busy with other matters, nor, in fact, greatly caring at that moment that others existed. The manner of love may change, but not the manners of lovers. Memory surged after memory on waves of nostalgia and homesickness that told their own story of why the memories had been long buried. Chalon had fallen away behind them, and the strangeness of the cleavage from their fellows had dismayed them. In and around the spaceport center, a multitude of the fellows they were never to see again had paused long enough in their own affairs to mesh thoughts in a final projection of encouragement that reached after the dwindling ship like a gesture of farewell. A long, long farewell. A final farewell, unrecognized for the last parting that it was. They had known from the experience of others that the first terrible silence would be a hard thing to endure until the strangeness wore off. At first they huddled like two children, driving their thoughts far into unanswering space, in desperate disbelief that such utter silence could be. Repelled by space, they turned to each other, and found more complete union than they had thought possible. 
from the depth of their union they found the strength and growth and maturity to adapt, to endure, and to survive. The fear passed. The worst was over. Planetfall succeeded planetfall, and the routine of their activities became smooth and practiced. As was the custom, they had been asked to obtain various items of information from sundry known but largely unexplored planets to help determine whether a later visit by a full-scale exploration team would be advisable. In one system they made a rapid instrumental survey of the only major continent on the only inhabitable planet from a height of a hundred miles. In another, a skimming prospecting trip in a certain area confirmed a predicted rich ore body. And at all times, of course, particularly when they left the known systems behind and entered virgin territory, there was the Chalinari to be trained and observed. The Chalinari, a part organic artificial brain, was one of the most promising recent developments of Chalin science. It was also one of the most debatable, for the Chalinari was capable of independent thought in its limited fashion, and yet had been devised solely as an instrument, a tool. It had no freedom of action, no physical independence, but it had childlike emotions, and this was the damnable thing, a sense of identity and awareness of its creators as such. Thus the moral issue was raised. To the Chalin, the control or coercion of an independent intelligence was a cardinal outrage. No greater sanctity existed than the sanctity of the individual, for anything that prejudiced or restricted the right of the individual to full mastery of himself was worse even than the deliberate taking of life. It was murder of the ego. In a telepathic society, life itself could not be more precious than self-control. The combined growth and manufacture of the Chalinari had been stopped in horror when it was realized that their capabilities were greater than anticipated. An organic tool had not been created, but rather, uh, what? When does a tool become an entity? If it is an entity, what right have its makers to control it and use it as a tool? What right have they to, the thorniest issue of all, destroy it or otherwise put it aside when it is no longer required? Until these fundamental issues could be settled, the handful of Chalinari in existence must be cared for, trained and observed as if they were backward children. The main function of the Chalinari on such a voyage as this was to safeguard the ship and its immediate vicinity when on strange worlds. This is accomplished by a swift, simplified appraisal of the offensive capacities of any life-form coming within its limited range. If their natural weapons, claws, size, poison, fangs, rendered them potentially dangerous should the mentor leave the ship, then the Chalinari projected into their minds a simple disinterest in the environs of the ship, a reluctance to approach closer. If this failed, the reluctance impulse became tinged with fear, the intensity of the fear increasing until the desired retreat occurred. 
if the approaching unknown was of sufficient intelligence to identify the disinterest, reluctance, fear impulse as a telepathic warning, then no further effort was made to turn it back, much less to hurl it back by force. That would have been unthinkable. An intelligent entity approaching the vessel would be welcomed and requested to identify itself, while notice of its approach would be delivered to the Chalin Mantor. Stranger and Chalin would then inevitably join in friendly greeting, for hostile suspicion was unknown among minds that lay open one to the other. Among the handful of known life-forms of sufficient intelligence to possess highly organized communications, no exception to this natural rule existed. A meeting of minds was a meeting of friends. Memory flinched, wavered, then flowed on into previously forbidden areas. The long outward voyage approached its turning point, its disaster point. He did not know how or why it had happened. Perhaps in their mutual absorption he and Andra became careless. They had entered a planetary system, he recalled, and he had casually manipulated the controls. His perceptive faculties detected a tiny spurt of flame somewhere out of sight in the control bank. Then the potent energies reacted out of control for a critical instant near planetary mass. The swift restoration of control only eased the crash, the automatics taking over a fraction too late, for the fragile living tissue was smashed against the walls. The return of consciousness told him at once that he was in the presence of death. Lying paralyzed and helpless in a pool of his own fluids, he could see the jelly that had been Andra. He quietly resigned himself to the death that might yet take days to come. It would be welcome. An interregnum of shock followed in which his normal faculties were unseated, but with the passage of time he roused himself a little. Weakened as he was, his perception told him that the ship had buried itself deep in a swamp until it rested on bedrock. A dozen feet of muck and water lay over it. Even had they survived the crash, they would have been helpless unless intelligent aid could be enlisted. He tried to drive out his thoughts in a cry for help, but the strength was gone from him. Within a radius of two miles there was no intelligent life, if any existed on the planet. More from habit than for any other reason, he awakened the Chalinari. It had survived the crash unharmed in its carefully cushioned immobility, unaware that anything had transpired between the last planet fall and this one. It immediately perceived that one of the mentors had gone, but before it could ask questions it was sternly directed to concentrate its attention on the environs of the vessel. Having thus distracted it from the presence of death, he sank back gratefully into a stasis of no thought. Let time pass. It would bring succor or death, and he could do nothing more to hasten either one. The Chalinari roused him from his stupor on the third day after the crash. 
it was disturbed, excited, by something beyond his comprehension. While he had lain helpless and shriveling on a compartment floor, something unusual had approached to within half a mile of the ship through the thick swamp vegetation. The life-form had apparently detected the first tendrils of thought from the Chalinari, and without preamble, as a natural defense, erected a savage metal shield. Pain and chaos that made coherent thinking difficult shook the artificial brain, but since this evidently was not an intelligent life-form, else it would not have reacted in such a manner, the Chalinari increased in intensity its fear-reluctance impulse. The mental shielding of the intruder blazed and crackled with increasing dissonance, radiating pain, fear, and panic, but no decipherable intelligent thought. It drew nearer, erratically, apparently running, then swiftly lapsed into unconsciousness. That was when the bewildered Chalinari had called him for aid. He reached out wearily with his mind in automatic response, touched, and hastily withdrew. Even when unconscious, the strange being had an aura of discordance about its mind. He would have shivered had he still been capable of physical reaction. For this was unsanity, a thing he had heard of but never before encountered. The Chalinari caught his protective thought and withdrew from contact, though not without a soft protest, for it was inquisitive as any child. It, too, had heard of unsanity. Rare stresses or injuries, now and again, temporarily upset the balance of the mind, and required the healing touch of other minds. But unsanity was not something the Chalinari could handle. It withdrew from possible infection, protestingly, fearful for its beloved mentor, but incapable of disobeying a clear command. His own great pity for the sick creature outside conquered the inertia of approaching death, and he rallied what mental forces he still retained. He could not disregard suffering, nor withhold whatever aid it was in his power to give. Carefully, knowing something of what to expect, he probed the shield, which was no true shield, but an uproar of faulty coordination comparable to the disruptions coming from a badly tuned radio. Wincing, as a musician winces when harsh, grating dissonance strikes his ear, he gingerly probed deeper and deeper, exploring the strange and fascinating structure that was unlike anything he had ever experienced. It was an extraordinary complexity that spread before him, a maze, a labyrinth, a magnificent corruption of order and reason. His first discovery he half expected. This was a mind of an intelligence level not far beneath his own, though fearfully hobbled by misconceptions, superstitions, half-truths and fallacies. Life had brutally mishandled and shackled. Life had? It was an adult of its species, how could its condition have existed undetected for so long? He extended his explorations, and suddenly the incredible truth lay revealed. The dominant species on this planet 
was that theoretically possible but logically improbable mistake of nature, a race of intelligent non-telepaths. Fantastic as it was, there was no room for doubt. He was glad he had ordered the Chalinari to withdraw from contact. To accept the existence of such beings required a flexibility under shock, an adaptability of reasoning, that the limited Chalinari could never rise to. It was like a blow at the structure of the universe, but it raised a fascinating age-old problem. What possible means of adequate communication could they have? Excited despite the great discomfort of maintaining contact with his mind, he extended his explorations in search of the answer. A growing suspicion was quickly confirmed beyond question, explaining at once the sickening deformities of the wasted mind and the enigma of the alternative means of communication. There simply was no adequate communication. From that all else stemmed. Each of these creatures, these, he searched for the term, these man, as they called themselves, was an island, an isolation of ego in a flood of dark fears that began lapping about them in early childhood and never ceased to rise. And this, by its own conception, was a normal specimen. It had matured in a thoroughly competitive society, instead of the completely cooperative society of the Chalon. It had never really known or understood its own true nature, much less that of its fellows. It had never truly known security, serenity, freedom, or peace. The eternal wonder was that it had progressed at all. Deeper and deeper he explored, tracing and classifying, filled with awe. The incredible creature knew little or nothing of its own nervous system, and would not have been aware of loss if the most essential portion of its brain had been surgically removed. Its lifespan was only a small fraction of what it should have been, since in its ignorance it failed to repair itself as it had the innate ability to do. And yet, what an unbelievable treasury lay locked and sealed here. Only long study could render this infinite honeycomb intelligible, even to a Chalon. Nothing like this had ever been known. Mingled horror and profoundest admiration grew at what he found, but the creature began to awaken. With a deft skill he planted a suggestion then hastily withdrew from contact before the impossible discord of mental cacophony became unbearable. The creature rose, wondering at its previous panic, and moved away from the vicinity of the vessel that now, above all else, it must never discover. That was the first problem to be faced. By learning what he had, the heaviest duty and the greatest moral obligation his race had ever borne was laid upon him. The last secret of these man made effective action imperative. Although he himself was crushed beyond hope of survival, somehow his new knowledge and all that it implied 
must survive. Unobtrusive physical reduction of the ship to completely unrecognizable debris might have to be accomplished eventually, but it certainly was not immediately possible. However, perception told him that the heavy vessel was already hidden beneath silt and stagnant water. It would be safe for a while from accidental discovery. The Chalinari was self-sustaining and could survive untended for years if necessary, serving to keep the area clear of wildlife that might draw hunters of the dominant species dangerously near. There remained, then, the problem of providing a substitute for his own personal survival. Here the prospect seemed hopeless. The requirements were a continuance of understanding, together with both the will and the ability to act as necessary. Theoretically, he could have forcefully taken possession of the body and mind of any suitable subject, but the mere thought of such a violation was impossibly abhorrent. Respect for the right of the individual to self-will was so deeply ingrained as to make the deliberate unseating of another's reason virtually impossible. On the other hand, free-willed cooperation and understanding were equally out of reach. To enter the conscious mind of these beings was agony for both parties. They could neither project nor receive thoughts. Ebbing vitality and the increased urgency of the problem drove him to a desperate resource. A pregnant female came within the extreme range of his perception. An embryo mind might serve. The mind, as yet unsullied, sleeping, a blank page untouched by the world, was open to him. If the appropriate knowledge was seated in its memory banks, it might, it must, remain sane despite the world, and a sane mind would not dispute what must be done. He made a quick evaluation of the subject mind and discovered the flaw. The intelligence potential was too low. The embryo would not be capable of understanding the planted memories as they came to the conscious level, nor be capable of acting on them if they were understood. Time was ebbing fast, and vitality with it. Very well, then, the most desperate, the most questionable resource of all remained. The unused, unrecognized prime center, true seat of the intellect, must be activated, the way nature, presumably, had intended that it should be, had not something gone wrong in the dawn years of the planet. There could be no moral objection to this measure of successful since it amounted to giving sight to a blind man. The element of grave doubt lay in the relative chances of success or failure. The strange interlocking structure of the unconscious mind of the embryo was not something that could be unraveled and examined in a hurry. Honesty compelled him to evaluate himself as young and inexperienced, not especially noted among his own kind for brilliantly incisive judgment, it was not the sort of thing that he should even attempt without long study. It was too risky, too indecisive, too... Time made the decision. There was no time left. The chill of death told its own story. 
In an agony of haste he summoned all that remained of vitality and fought off death while he entered the embryo mind. The fast shriveling body in the spaceship retained life long enough to recognize the blunder, but not long enough to correct it. The wrong was done, and could not be undone. The memories that mercifully blurred became clear again. He knew that in due course the mishandled embryo experienced birth, entering the world normally as a helpless, feebly squirming, pathetically vulnerable mite, and in no way drew unusual attention to itself. No one knew or cared that intellectual awakening was phenomenally quick, the first tentative questionings occurring in only the fourth week of life. He recalled how the stirring of objective awareness brought with it a half-remembered pang of death, and how the stirring of innocent wonder brought memories. The memory banks flooded open at the touch of wonder, poured out their contents, and the fledgling ego went down before the surge, overwhelmed forever. Inexperienced in such delicate maneuvers, and overtaken at the crises by the climactic unseating of death, he had poured into the empty memory banks the whole contents of his own mind. All his knowledge, all his experiences, all his memories on every level of incidents great and small. Everything, including the complex and ineradicable concept of his own identity. End of section three.